welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J.FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska about Richmond school redistricting and the legacy of segregation. We also talk with two fellow podcasters about their show. It's called Sacred and Profane, and it's stories about the ways religious belief affect our everyday world. But right now, we have Emily and Giles from Charlottesville Tomorrow in the studio, and I'm going to pick their brains about development downtown. Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Giles Morris is the executive director. There have been a number of developments up for approval over the summer. Let's start downtown. What changes can people expect to see on the downtown mall and along West Main Street? So I want to start with the Center of Developing Entrepreneurs, which is at the site of the former Charlottesville Ice Park. If you walk downtown, that's all the construction you're hearing. That's going to be basically a luxury office building with co-working space, so it's intended to have the gamut of startups to established businesses. It's partially intended to support and expand the tech scene in Charlottesville, which will also, that succeeds, likely expand the demand for high-end housing. So speaking of high-end housing, 600 West Main is nearly complete. The leasing is starting. That's on West Main Street around the Blue Moon Diner building. And as people have noticed, it's definitely a luxury building with 1500 as the lowest rent that is currently up and up to almost $4,000 a month. That's with Jeffrey Levine of Heirloom Development with Milestone Partners. And they're working on a second phase for that, where the University Tire and Auto Center is, basically right next to that building. And it's going to be a little bit smaller at four stories. And the Charlottesville Planning Commission is looking at that now. They deferred it the last time they looked at it. So these developers, they have 600 West Main Street, and they're also proposing 612 West Main Street, And then they also have a third property that's going to go in downtown if they get approved, right? So Jeff Levine, again with Milestone Partners, working on a nine-story building at the Artful Lodger site. That's basically right across from, you know, really close to the Code building, right next to the Omni. It's on West Market Street where East Market meets Preston Avenue, basically. And the application talks about how this is housing for some of these luxury office buildings that are going up downtown. You know, they'll be able to walk to work. It seems like a a pretty sweet deal for that group. (laughs) Do people expect these new luxury housing developments to have an impact on prices in neighboring areas like 10th and Page or in Fifeville? The First Baptist Church on West Main Street is, I think, the first African-American church in Charlottesville. Very historic. It's right next to the second phase of 600 West Main. And they're definitely watching this development closely. They and neighbors are worried about, is there enough parking on site? Because they're already experiencing a lot of parking from UVA employees. In terms of prices and how it affects the neighborhoods around that, these historically black neighborhoods, it's complicated because Fifeville and 10th and Page do seem to have become more valuable. And people talk about displacement, all these stories of displacement. It's a little bit hard to see in the data. And then people in those neighborhoods also are definitely worried about the buildings on West Main turning their backs to the neighborhoods. That's something you hear a lot. On the other hand, 
there's definitely a demand for this luxury housing. I saw a chart where basically the incomes of people in Charlottesville have tracked this rapid increase in rent prices in Charlottesville. So it's basically in some ways because there's just really high income people here and there's a limited housing stock. So people at the higher income levels are buying and living in places that lower income people used to be able to afford. Could you give us a little context about West Main? What's the history of recent development there like? Really interesting. When I moved to town in 2011, it was really nothing except for the, you know, where Feast and buildings on the other side that look similar to it. You know, it was yeah, a, collect- a loose collection of tire shops, you know, you re- handful of restaurants. The, through Google Maps, the street view, and it will show you, you know, 2009, I think even. And you can see a lot of auto-focused buildings. The University Tire and Auto Center is interesting because it's one of the last buildings like what used to be there. I spoke to Maurice Cox for one of my articles. He was really pushing for the rezoning that allowed this kind of development. And he was saying it's a much shorter walk now between the university and downtown. It feels really different um, and he was saying that, that that's a positive. Yeah, there was a, at that time, the sentiment was that there was this deep yearning for the connection between the university and the downtown. Um, that was what dominated so many of the conversations. There was almost zero conversation about affordable housing. And there was some conversation about the impact on the adjacent black neighborhoods, but it was muted. And West Main is now a catchphrase for the expensive evolution of Charlottesville, the connected quarter between UVA and downtown that serves the UVA community, the medical center community. Here we are on the other side, and it's a completely different landscape, and the conversations are really different. I think about the, the significance or the symbolism of two huge luxury buildings going in the footprint of Vinegar Hill. I mean, that's the edge of Vinegar Hill, the Artful Lodger and Code. Mm. So is that on the developers? No, but is that on the community to recognize that certain parts of the community see that? And it, it, it does feel like someone's turning their back on you again after having turned their back on you many times before. And so how do you then deal with that in more responsible ways in neighborhoods surrounding it that help? What role does city planning play in all of this? Well, I mean, development definitely won't happen according to the city vision until the city defines its new vision. I think it's very clear that the city is is changing, the community is changing on what their priorities are, but there isn't a clear description of that yet. Almost every week we talk about the housing crisis here and affordability. What role will these buildings play in the overall housing market? I think it's unlikely that this kind of new housing is going to serve middle market. You know, right. I, I yeah. think it's going to serve that high, high income end, yeah. group, which does need help. There's a demand for it. But if you look at the data for who's really, really, really hurting in Charlottesville on rents, it's that lowest, lowest in, you know, like minimum wage yeah. level. Employees are really hurting, paying like up, you know, half of their income towards housing, which is really squeezes the rest of what you can afford. When I've talked to housing experts, that group is not going to be served by the free market ever. That's why you need subsidized housing. I mean, you have the image of the UVA faculty and the trailing spouse. One of them walks downtown, the other one walks to the corner. They come back, they can shop. The sort of beautiful vision of Charlottesville that Charlottesville had of itself 
the missing piece was what does that mean for the people who walk to the hospital to work as wage earners, the yeah. people who walk downtown to work in the restaurants and, and be servers and, and clean the hotels and the apartment buildings? What is their life like? And did you plan for it? And I think we all realized that we didn't. Well, one of the things that I love about Charlottesville Tomorrow's coverage is that it not only helps me stay more informed on hyperlocal community issues, but it also helps me be a more active citizen. So in that vein, we're going to start a new tradition where we end this segment every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville Tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? What should we all put on our calendars? Well, getting back to one of the developments I talked about earlier, the second phase of 600 West Main is scheduled for the next Charlottesville Planning Commission meeting. That's this Tuesday. Oh, yeah. My calendar next week, I will be in New Orleans for the Online News Association Conference, kind of hobnobbing with our nonprofit newspaper peers. But I'm particularly excited for the Institute for Nonprofit News's podcasting, local podcasting workshop on Wednesday, and I'm hoping I can bring some trade secrets, networking, revenue ideas, I don't know, something back for all of us here to grow this soundboard game uh, to the level that it deserves. On my calendar this weekend, a little plug for a WTJU co-sponsored event. The second Free Fall concert will be at Ix Art Park on Saturday starting at 2 p.m. And this week it is 50th anniversary of Woodstock themed. <laughs> so it's called Love Fest, which in making the promos for that threw me down a long rabbit hole of reading stuff about Woodstock. And Santana. Yeah, it was it was fun. I ended up watching the PBS documentary that came out ages ago. and then So, so the New York Times did the story when the concert was supposed to actually happened. The 50th anniversary mm-hmm. concert was said to have. It was like one of these classic PR interviews with Carlos Santana, but that turned really weird and sideways and funny when he described getting dosed by Jerry Garcia with a huge amount of mescaline right before he went on stage. And so his famous performance was essentially him literally trying not to like drop his guitar and stay <laughs> in the music while uh, on a very intense mescaline trip. So... I'm embarrassed to admit this sitting in a radio station, but I had never heard feel like I'm fixing to die rag. (laughs) And I came across it and the line, um, and there ain't no time to wonder why, whoopee, we're all gonna die. I texted it to my sister and I was like, this is the strongest Gen Z energy I've ever heard. It was funny. Full circle, so, I know, yeah, yeah sort of ni- nihilistic <laughs> existentialism with pure idealism and communitarian values. Yeah. This Saturday at 2 p.m. at Ix Art Park, <laughs> come on down. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Emily Hayes is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Giles Morris is the executive director. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM, and the Teej FM Network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU and Teej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, each week here on Soundboard, we cover state news and politics, and as we do each week, we check in with our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion and is based in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So today we're talking about schools. And over in the Richmond area, there has been a particularly uh, ugly fight about school redistricting that has a lot of racial overtones to it. Uh, Take me through what's going on. 
Well, the problem is is, is this. It's, it's, it's all of a sudden, from after years of not hearing the words, we're now hearing them, which goes a really kind of a negative throwback to the past called Save Our Neighborhood Schools. And just to run you really quickly through the history of it, of course, there is segregation by law. Then after Brown versus Topeka, the Supreme Court decision, Virginia opted for massive resistance to avoid uh, integrating schools. Then when that was knocked down by the courts, there was a, a movement in the 70s, roughly early 70s, late 60s, called Save Our Neighborhood Schools. So these are all kind of like negative code words. And now they're cropping up again, specifically in Richmond, which is in, uh, you know, kind of a cusp because it, uh, you know, it's getting an influx of, of new new affluent residents, mostly white, but not all of them. And it has kind of this leftover from white flight of a lot of really broken down schools and bad SOL scores that are pretty much, you know, have been dominated by African-American students and many say they've been neglected for years. So this is coming now to a, a fight over two, two or three specific schools. Now, one of them is Fox Elementary in Richmond, which is about 56% white, and the other is J.B. Carey Elementary School, which is 82% black. And uh, there's a new uh, school board superintendent who wants to do something about this, and he would want to, um, you know, mix everybody up and go to one school, Fox, until second grade, and then the, the groups would go, the combined schools would go to Carey for third and fourth grade. This has become a political battle. Uh, a Republican who was on the school board once, Glenn Sturdivant, who's young and, and popular, uh, who's running for re-election, has, has brought this up as a Save Our Neighborhood Schools fight. And a lot of people are crying that this is just, you know, a really bad turn back to the past. And another thing we're seeing here, which is kind of another trend, which has been written about by a number of different people, is not just Richmond or even Virginia, but over nationally about whether you're seeing kind of a return to segregation. Yeah, you and I talked about this some uh, off mic earlier that there's a new report out about Virginia specifically that we're actually uh, Virginia schools are more segregated than they were in 1969 uh, right after Yeah, and this this is what this is what the report that I saw says it's from the UCLA Civil Rights Project. It said in 1989 3% of Virginia schools, 3% were intensely segregated with 10% uh, identifying as white. And in 2018 7% of the schools fell into that category. And it's really, it's obviously not new anti-integration laws that are doing it. It seems to be a complicated uh, sort of formula of socioeconomic class, class you know, advancement, but it's becoming kind of concerning. Yeah, and and to be clear, neither of these two schools in Richmond that we're talking about uh, mixing up together fall, would fall into that intensely segregated category. Um, and yet... You know, it, it's a trend sort of reflective of, of a lot of regions where, where, you know, sort of more middle and upper middle class, uh, mostly white families are moving back into urban cores, but but there's still like sort of old fashioned racial tensions. Exactly. And, and I mean, there's, if you read the, the, the blogosphere, there are a lot of people are saying that it's not racism at all. Some people say, look at D.C. has, I think Dunbar is a practically all black school that, that is, you know, has many, many highly successful alum. And why can't we do that in Richmond? And, and I mean, I don't know. But it's pretty obvious that Richmond has always been uh, for years in trouble with its inner city schools. I mean, when I worked at Style Weekly, we did story after story there about, you know, toilets and urinals that were ripped out of, of bathrooms, about roofs that leaked. And um, there's a 25, roughly, percent poverty rate in, in, in the city. And, and, and none of these problems ever seems to be addressed. 
Yeah, I mean, if the racial differences didn't also come with intense socioeconomic class differences, it might be a different story. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously, the big the big white flight occurred when they put Interstate 95 in and some other highways, and that opened up Enrico and Chesterfield and Hanover counties to, to whites who wanted to move there. What I'm seeing where I live in Chesterfield, for example, there are, are a number of, of affluent, middle-class African-American families moving in, and there's no big deal. But the problem seems to be with the the revitalization and reinterest in in inner cities. It's actually kind of causing strange forms of uh, of racism. Right. All right. Well, I want to move on to another topic we've got today, and this one is uh, another, I guess, Virginia institution, if you will, is uh, basically looking at Virginia's tobacco economy, uh, specifically Philip Morris. Um, uh, take oh, me yeah. through what's going on. You wrote about this at Bacon's Rebellion this week. Well, I mean, I've been following tobacco for years, but just just as a, a little historical footnote, one of the first laws ever passed by our beloved General Assembly in 1619 or thereabouts was a, a law supporting the price of tobacco. So this goes back for years and years and years. Anyway, what's happening in the news is basically this. Um, in the 1990s, there was a gigantic lawsuit involving, I think there are 46 states, including Virginia, against four major tobacco makers, including uh, Philip Moore. There was there were billions of dollars in in judgments. As a result of that lawsuit, um, Philip Morris, then based in New York, split itself into two companies: Philip Morris International, which has moved to Switzerland, and then uh, created Altria, a holding company, and Philip Morris USA, which moved from Manhattan to Richmond. Then Philip Morris, because of its sales declining in, in, in cigarette products, closed plants in North Carolina and Kentucky and moved everything here in Richmond. And, and Philip Morris is still a huge player locally because it employs about 3,700 people. But now there's talk that the old Philip Morris may come back together again in a new form. That's very strange for, for several reasons. Uh, what are those reasons? Well, for one thing... Um, there's this kind of like, you know, duality issue. Uh, Philip Morris International, it actually was, according to the Wall Street Journal about 10 years ago, uh, making Marlboro Wides and, and, and Marlboro brands that had more tar and nicotine in them than the usual ones. And this was designed to get people in third world countries hooked. They don't have the court system or the money to sue. And that's how they did boost sales for a while. Meanwhile, their, their sister company back in Richmond you go to their website and say, don't, don't use our products, you know, which is kind of strange and a bit disingenuous. But now that tobacco's definitely down, no question, they're, they're trying to look into uh, several new products. And these would include e-cigarettes and some, some kind of uh, s'mores, or excuse me, some snooze, rather, which are like snuff, old-type snuff, you know. And there's still another one, marijuana, because they just bought Kronos, part of, a good part of Kronos Group, which is a Canadian firm, because marijuana is legal in Canada, and this company is doing quite well. So, where does this leave Philip Morris and Altria as they as they look to sort of reemerge and move ahead? That's a great question, and I mean, when you really study the the parts individually, I mean, tobacco is going to be around, but it's in decline. It's going to be a slow goodbye. Um, they sell some wine, which is nice, but not a lot of it. Um, they have, you know. Um, some of these non, you know, kind of snuff-like products and things like that. that a lot of them are they bought from European companies, and then you have, you know, e-cigarettes, which they were always kind of reluctant to get into because they really took a beating in the '90s with the big lawsuit against cancer and other health problems. And so, e-cigarettes just don't, you know, they they're afraid of them. And marijuana, who knows? I mean, you know, 
Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a lot of, of of question marks still for what's still a very large company in Virginia. I know, and I mean, you go throughout Virginia. I mean, you know, there's still major political donors. They still are major um, philanthropists when it comes to the arts and culture and things like that. They're right up there with Dominion, and they're a very you know old old time Virginia type company. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for taking the time. Okay, you too. Bye bye. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM network, TWJ.FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our final segment, we sit down with Martine Halverson-Taylor and Curtis Schaefer. They're both professors in the Religious Studies Department and hosts of a new podcast from the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab called Sacred and Profane. To start off, what will people learn when they subscribe to Sacred and Profane? So the podcast is an effort to talk about the role of religion in our daily lives and the way religions show up in unexpected ways. And as we like to say, how we shape religions just as much as religions shape us. So all of our stories focus on how a religious concept or idea or a a community of religious people think about themselves as citizens and as sort of actors in community life. Could you give us an example of one of those communities? Sure. New Vrindavan is a religious center in West Virginia, and it's a part of the Vaishnava tradition of Hinduism. And it's one of the oldest intentional Hindu communities in the U.S., And when they were confronted with the issue of fracking in West Virginia, they had to align their values and their theology and their daily existence there, which they had cultivated over many decades, into a new economic reality. And that was incredibly difficult for them. And so the show takes us through that challenge that they faced over a several-year period. Let's hear a clip from that episode about New Vrindavan. The movement's founder, Srila Prabhupada, was 70 years old when he sailed from India to New York in 1965 and brought this new Hindu movement along with him. He started preaching in New York soon after he arrived, but things really took off when he moved to San Francisco. This is a Krishna Kirtan conducted by Swami A.C. Bhaktivedanta in a storefront near Kizar Stadium. The standard Judeo-Christian morals have just blown the coup. They're done for. One of the things that, that these young people are discovering is the quality of being holy. They're interested in, in the kirtan, the mantra singing. And Prabhupada and his followers weren't afraid to put things in terms that would appeal to San Francisco's hippies. There was even a Hare Krishna poster that read, Stay high forever. No more coming down. Practice Krishna consciousness.
our show in general and that particular episode focuses on particularly ancient concepts and how they are playing out in our lives today. And one of the concepts that the new Vrindavan community had to deal with was a sense of time that had been handed down to them through the ages. And it was really helping them to sort out what is the meaning of this time. So that's a great example of how the stories in your show are both situated in specific places and time, but are also broadly relevant. What do the conversations on your show offer to people in this place and time in Charlottesville? Well, today we're confronted with identity issues, and those run from race, of course, to class and economic status and religion. And religion is embedded in all of those different identities. And it was no accident that the people forming the strongest counter-protest were from religious groups in the Charlottesville events of August 2017. So part of our story will be the story of why religion is so motivating for people. Could you tell us a little bit about the meaning of the title, Sacred and Profane? Sacred and Profane marks out two parts of life that we typically think of as separate. The divine or God or enlightenment, there are many different names for the sacred. The profane is what's common, what's normal. What's what's, mundane. What's mundane, what's earthly. And part of the reason to put those two together is to show again and again through stories in our podcast how they're interrelated, how perhaps they're no different at all from each other. How did you all scout out the stories in season one? That has been a very interesting process for us. Some of our stories come from faculty members at UVA. A lot of our stories come from students, work that they were doing through a humanity lab that we have established called the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab. We have a host of uh, undergraduate and graduate students who have been getting research funding from us last year, this summer, and again, we'll be putting out a call for this fall to do these kinds of stories. And it's really allowed us to have the kind of global perspective we hoped for because our students are from everywhere, they go everywhere, and they have been able to bring us back really interesting sometimes firsthand accounts. A great example of the kind of talent that the lab is bringing the podcast is our graduate student in religious studies, Evan Sandsmark. Evan's been living in Austria for the past few years, and he came to a podcast and audio uh, storytelling workshop that we ran a couple of years ago. And it turned out that he had some journalism experience prior to that. In Austria, he had been taking German lessons, and he started to meet uh, refugees from the Middle East. And he started to become friends with people who he realized were totally out of place in Austria. And they were being defined specifically by their religious identity in ways that they never had. And we realized that was a great story about immigration and refugee challenges more generally. Another good example would be in the story of New Vrindavan, where uh, this time we paired a graduate student of ours, Kevin Rose, with a reporter. She'd always wanted to do a story on this community, but Kevin was able to lend a certain depth dimension in the reporting of religion that she might not have been able to on her own. And so the two of them collaborated 
um, for a very interesting story in which Kevin was able to draw important comparisons between what this community was facing in the decision about whether or not to allow fracking on their land and what other, uh, for example, fundamentalist Christian communities had been discussing because of his own research. What's coming up in season two? In season two, we have a number of different stories in the works. One is a story about the cult of the Santa Muerta, which is an important religious cult in Mexico. It's sometimes called a narco cult, and that is also brought to us by a graduate student, Jesse Mayorkin. And we also have several stories on events in Charlottesville, including a very important episode revolving around the last known site of lynching in Charlottesville, actually just down the road from here. That will be brought to us by our colleague Jelaine Schmidt in Religious Studies. Uh, Claudrina Harold from UVA's History Department is going to bring us another important episode uh, on Aretha Franklin and particularly her singing of Amazing Grace, which was deployed with certain uh, political nuances in certain social contexts. Um, so that ought to be beautiful to listen to. Because some of us love music. We have a number of episodes coming out over the next year about music. Aretha Franklin, for one. Alice Coltrane is another a famous jazz musician who transformed jazz into a kind of spiritual music when she integrated it with Hindu devotional songs in the 1970s. Where can people find Sacred and Profane? Sacred and Profane is on iTunes and Radio Public and most places where one consumes podcasts. And if you subscribe to the website, you'll not only be alerted to new episodes, but other related events that might be of interest if you're in the area. Well, thank you all so much for coming in today. All right. Thank you so much for having us. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you all learned something new this week, and if you did, please share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Choka Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pine. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. <laughs>